Welcome back to The Everyday Hair Colourist. Today's guest is John Spanton, Senior Technical Director for Specialist Projects at Trevor Sorbet International. Also a friend of mine, which is really nice. So welcome on board, John. Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm really great, thank you. So listen, not only do you span the creative piece of the industry with many accolades and awards for it, you're also a salon successful colourist commercially successful, which is absolutely wonderful. You managed to cross both paths. And so I think you've got a fantastic story to tell. But what I'd like to know is, how did it all start for you? Um, I, I mean, I started in a salon in the town that I grew up in, in Paisley. Um, just regular assistant. Um, everyone was an all-rounder. Um, there wasn't that type of salon in Paisley where you had separate colourists and stylists. So you kind of trained in both and then you went on the floor as both pretty normal kind of background really and so when you talk about that starting out was that in the 70s or the <laughs> 80s for you <laughs> it, it was it was the 80s uh, it was 1984 it was literally four days before my 16th birthday it was my first day of work so i kind of have a work anniversary very clearly uh, because of it but yeah i mean I, I i didn't really want to be a hairdresser i went for the job as an excuse to skive off school i wanted to do art at college uh, that was it. I wanted to make pots, um, become a potter. And your parents wouldn't let you go to college or you had to no, go out and start making some money? No, or... no, it was, it was, I, I wanted a part-time job of some description just to earn money. And I was kind of twiddling my thumbs at school waiting to go to college. The plan was to go the following um, sort of September, October. And this was kind of October the year before. So I felt like I was just treading water at school. Right. And, um, so I was kind of bored there. The only subjects I liked at that point were English and art. Yeah, then, so the, the excuse to go for an interview was was just to skive off school. That's hysterical. And I found this, a, a girl who had been the year above me at school that I'd gone well with. Oh, we are looking for someone to come in. And, and I thought, so I kind of ended up going in. And at 15, nearly 16, the, the salon owner... Um, was really passionate about the, the, the industry. So by the time that 45 minutes was up, that passion and sort of enthusiasm that she had had kind of transferred over to this kind of impressionable sort of almost 16-year-old. And by the time I left the interview, I wanted the job. That's amazing. That's cool. That's a cool story. So you trained in, the, you trained in Paisley? Yeah, originally. Yeah, most of it then finished my training in Glasgow, which is just next door, really. So but was that a big move for you to move to Glasgow? Uh, from- from Paisley? It, it, it kind of what, it felt like quite a big move at the time. Because um, yeah. although they're next door to each other, there's only like seven miles between Paisley Town Centre and Glasgow Town Centre. It's like going up to Glasgow at that point felt a bigger thing. Was the big thing yeah, to do? Yeah, it was either. I mean, the next thing's where, where you go to Glasgow, you go to London. Um, and I wasn't really ready at 16, so going on 17. Um, or was I 17 already? I think no, I was 17 already. Um, London, I wasn't ready for London at that point. So off to Glasgow you went? Finished my training. What was that like? Uh, it was great. I mean, it, was, it changed everything socially. Um, being a sort of young gay lad in the 80s and that part of the world, it wasn't the most progressive area. So socially it changed everything um, for me, kind of opened my eyes up, opened um, my ears up. Um, there were more opportunities. Um, and at, around that time, I, I kind of became aware of, of Trevor Sorby, weirdly, um, who was also born and kind of lived the first part of his life in Paisley. Oh, wow. That's in, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was there until he was 11. Um, and then, so to find out this guy was doing these amazing things, as he was at the time, um, was from my hometown. Kind of was an added inspiration, really. Um, if that wee boy from Paisley could do something, then so can I, I could have a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never wanted to be a famous hairdresser. I never wanted the TV stuff that, that was big at the time, I'm sure. I'm not sure if you're old enough to remember, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm 500 years old. <laughs> On a good day. I walked through flames. <laughs> um, cheeky. So, um, in, the, in the 80s, though, there was a lot of makeover TV and, and there was a lot of on-TV on hairdressing, the clothes show. Uh, this morning, I think, was starting around that sort of time. Um there was uh, a lot of sort of makeover TV as well as you know, houses being made over. There was a lot of women being made over in TV. Right. And Trevor and a lot of others were part of that. And I never really fancied that. I liked anonymity a, a bit too much, I think. That's interesting, isn't it? Because so many people chase that, that, that route for yeah. success, but you've, got, you've gone a, a different route for it. We'll talk more about that a little bit later on. So you finished qualifying in Glasgow. Yeah. And did, did you stick around for a while? Yeah, I was there for a little while. Well, I, I kind of had a partner um, by the time I qualified and, and they had a child. Um, so they weren't in any hurry to leave Glasgow at all. Right. Uh, understandably. And, um, so I stuck around and we ended up opening a salon together. Uh, he was also a hairdresser. And then... Um, Ultimately, I think it was the, the business that kind of kept us together for quite as long as we were. So uh, when that ended, um, a few years later, uh, I had already started working for uh, Matrix, part of L'Oreal. Yes. Um, uh, and then I was the, the Scottish education manager for them. So quite quickly after that relationship ended, I, I had quite a good relationship with my, my a very good relationship with my, my line manager at the time, uh, a guy called Martin Dale, who's now the vice president for education for the US for Matrix. Um, now. Wow. And he, um, he said, we've put together this job for you. Do you want to come to London? And um, so I, I kind of negotiated a little bit and then I moved to London within probably about three weeks of accepting the job. So it all happened quite quickly. That is quick, isn't it? And I think that you have, you have I mean, you have such a strong education background too and you're, like this, you're great in the classroom and you're a great teacher. But I didn't realise it had gone that far, far back into your... I mean, it's basically in your DNA, isn't it, really? Your hairdressing DNA. The, the salon that I finished my training in, the, the, there wasn't a, a real consistent kind of uh, set-out logical plan. I was very lucky then that at that point in time, uh, every every senior member of staff had a junior member of staff to themselves. Yes, those and the, were the days. The, the person that I worked with mostly um, took me under the wing and, and, and trained me really, really well, um, but also kind of gave me a bit of an interest in teaching um, right. and also kind of feeling on the other end of not having a, a, a good, strong training programme. Um, I felt, uh, as a newly senior member of staff, I kind of, uh, I, I, I need to kind of pass on what I'd learned really quickly. Mm. So I started um, sort of unofficially teaching within weeks of me passing and going on the floor. So I, I was kind of unofficially teaching almost straight away, like the minute I qualified. Well, our industry though, I mean, John, really, it, it's like if you don't share what you know within, with the anybody really it's sort of it's, it seems alien to me i think it's it's within our culture 
mostly to share what you know, isn't it? It's about yeah. where, that, where that journey can take you. Because some people don't think education is just not for them, but obviously it's a, a deep-rooted passion of yours. I, yeah, I think it was just built in. Mm. Um, it's the need to sort of take care of others, I suppose, in a way, um, and kind of bring out what they have already got inside them. Yeah. I think that's the other thing that I've, I've found with some teachers, uh, and it's kind of cropped up a little bit, I think maybe since the first lockdown as well. Some people's need to teach is more about them having a, a live or them having a a, a profile or, or whatever. It's, it's, it's not about um, them doing a good job and passing on information. It's about them showing off. Mm. And I think teaching, and you know this as well, because you, you, you do what you do incredibly well, that it's about the person you're talking to or the people that you're talking to. Yeah. And them learning something. Yeah, it's not... It's not I think I, I personally feel like in education that I always learn something from teaching. Without you know, a doubt. You're in a classroom and there's these amazing people that want to come and learn with you and you actually learn things from them too. Which it, and I think that you take the ego, your ego out of it and it's, a, it's much more beneficial to everyone anyway. Without a doubt. I mean, I think if you consider everyone that you teach, particularly in a classroom situation where you have personal contact with them rather than at a distance um, through mm. the internet or online... If you sort of see that person from a selfish point of view, you've got however many, 10, 12, 15, 20 pairs of eyes and 20 different perceptions of things. And you can see that as an opportunity for you to learn from them because they're going to look at it slightly differently. Of course they are. But they're also going to to challenge you to make you teach them slightly differently because every single person has a slightly different need. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's why online is good but I personally think in person is even better. So I think there are different entry levels to education. Yeah. I think we'll come back to the, the social and the, the classroom stuff a little bit later on because I think that's a, that's a great story in there and a great conversation. But I'm going to get you, you've, you've left Glasgow, you've got a job with Matrix and you've landed in London. How old were you? Uh, 29. 29? Yeah. Okay. yeah. How, how, what did that feel like? Um, well, I was newly single. Um, I, like a boy in a candy store. Oh God, you wouldn't believe. I mean, I I I was very good at being a very bad boy for a while. Um, it was great fun. I mean, London's a great city. I'd already fallen in yes. love with it. Um, as part of the Matrix Laurel family, I was kind of visiting um, London probably twice a month for a couple of days. I was I had friends down here. Um, so yeah, it was it was something that I really wanted to do, and in my private life, my home life was probably what prevented it from happening before it happened. Right. Um, so yeah, it was great fun, and, and it was a it was a really good job. Um, I kind of I, I was writing in uh, the education programs for Matrix. I was teaching them to the teachers. I organised sort of national trainings. Um, I helped do inductions for everyone. Uh, it was it was a a great job um, for, a, for a very long time. And did you, going into that, because of course it's so different corporate to salon, isn't it? Yeah. Did, did you find that a stretch for you or did you find that you slid quite easily into the role? Well, I mean, up until that point, I'd been an all-rounder. So it was kind of the deciding point that I went from being an all-rounder to being a colourist, I think, because you don't, you know, no one manufactures haircuts. Um, 
no, every every product company manufactures hair colours sort of thing. So that was an easy part. But I kind of started helping out, and then I then I kind of had Scotland's an area which is no, geographically bigger than, than, than London, but kind of population wise about half the size of London. Right. So it was um, it was kind of different in that way. So I kind of eased into it. So I started doing a bit of helping out backstage stuff, the odd little class here and there, and then went to work for them in Scotland full time and then moved to London. So it was kind of a fairly kind of gradual sort of roll up the Process. hill, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much, uh, that, that was very much the way that it was though, wasn't it? I mean, I remember when I started doing education and it was, you were given little small roles and, and then you went on to possibly a, a bigger role if you did well in it and a bigger role and a bigger role. And you sort of grew slowly and it was, a, it was, a, it, it was like going up a ski slope, really, as you sort of went up the ladder. Yeah. Whereas it's a little bit different now. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, the, 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 the training when you, you start with a company, because you, you don't go there trained, you, you have obviously a skill set that you bring to the party, but yes. um, they have quite a, an in-depth induction process because you have to know those products really well. And you have to speak about things a certain way because you, you have legal requirements from a manufacturer. Yes. You've got to be using the product to the manufacturer's instructions. And as we all know as, as, as hairdressers and colourists, there's little tweaks, little back pocket information that you can have that a manufacturer wouldn't teach you, but you you know little ways here and there that you can kind of push a product, for example. Exactly. I mean, they're, they're the ways that actually help you in the behind the chair in the salon, aren't they? For yeah, the, yeah. The commercial pieces to it but you can't use those you can't use those as a, a an educator for a manufacturer you've got to teach to no. the letter it's a really good structured letter. structured way to learn to teach as well and it teaches you a lot about you as a teacher because you have to kind of limit yourself to a degree yes um, so it give, gives you more control <laughs> uh, sometimes i find that it, i find that could be frustrating as an educator if it has to be always to the the point where sometimes it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but that's product companies for you. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, I, I can see that. I completely agree as an, an educator, but I think the discipline that it taught me personally was really good for me at that point in time, though. Yeah. Oh, cool. I like that. So from Matrix, working for Matrix in London, how did you end up transitioning back into a salon? Not only a salon, but, I mean, Trevor Sorbet... Common Garden. Yeah. Uh, well, that was a bit of a... Uh, I, kind of, I took... I, I intended to take some time off. It was time for me to leave L'Oreal. Um, I was more than ready for the next role up within L'Oreal. But as you know, roles kind of within companies kind of get to a point and the higher up you go, the narrower the opportunities are. Yes. And I kind of waited around for about a year and a half. Nothing was coming up. Nothing was... Seemed as if it was in the pipeline. Um, so I, I kind of left and I was helping a friend out doing some things for their salon down the south coast uh, for a little while and I was kind of taking a casual approach to work for a little while and then I thought, right, if I'm going to stay in the industry and I kind of felt in my gut that I wanted to stay in the industry, um, what do I want to do? So I kind of went back to that first real inspiration was, was Trevor and I thought, right, okay, I'll, I'll send my CV and see if they're looking for people. Uh, and it was the only CV that I sent out. What was it? Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't apply for any other job. Um, I thought, well, we'll see how that goes. And if that doesn't go, then I'll 
think of plan B. Because there wasn't any need. I, I'd sold a property. I'd kind of had a little bit of cash to kind of live on. Yes. And there wasn't any kind of major need to kind of get a job. And um, and then they get back to me really quickly. I mean, like I said, I, I weirdly, I don't know why, but I faxed my CV in. Um, <laughs> I, I, For those of you that don't know what a fax is. <laughs> <laughs> classic, classic, just, just Google facsimile. <laughs> um <laughs> So yeah, so I, I then I got a phone call and I was actually in the bath when the phone went. And um, so I was sat really still in the bath, trying not to make any splashy noises. <laughs> and then I think that was on the Monday. I had a I had like a proper interview the Tuesday. Did my trade test on the Thursday. So it's it was five models in the trade test. It's quite quite a lot to get together. That's pretty intense. And then and then um, then they offered me. A Vardrim position, they offered me the job, but obviously you have to Vard it for, for however many weeks and then do a final test before you actually have a job job. Yeah. But that went really quickly. I, I did my final test after three weeks. Uh, usually oh. at that point was, was kind of six as a minimum, I think. That's determination for you, yeah? Uh, stubbornness, yeah, probably. But also I, I think because I came from such a strong education background, I was also really open to learning as well. Yeah. Um, and at that point, I think, what was I, 34, I think? So I'd kind of been around for a while. I wasn't... I kind of got over any ego that I might have had about who I thought I might be uh, or whatever. Yeah. I just wanted to be the best I could be. So this was, this was for me, the, the, the way to do that. Doing a trade test can be quite a humbling and nervous experience, especially as you get older too, because you sort of think you've got it all in the bag and then you've got to suddenly perform again for... Not a client's expectation, but for another technician's expectation. Yeah. We get very used to having... Well, we get very used to people not checking our work. Yes. And then to kind of lay yourself bare like that uh, uh, does yeah. feel a little vulnerable, I think, for a lot of people. And the older you get, probably more so. Yeah, I think so. Because the people taking my test were younger than me as well. And checking your work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you, you just have you have to get over yourself for it, though. If you want something, you, I definitely think that's the the whole way of it. If you want something bad enough, you need to get over yourself. Yeah. But this stubbornness and this determination is something that runs throughout your career, isn't it? This is something that that you sort of speak to in your in your resume. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, I, I think it is um, stubbornness, determination to do well. I mean, I I without sort of playing any sort of violins, I. I we were pretty poor growing up. Um, mm. It was a life of hand-me-down clothes, and, and um, it wasn't. Uh, uh, we didn't have holidays unless we might have had a few days in a, a caravan holiday in Scotland or a sort of damp seaside holiday flat for a couple of days. But we, we, we didn't have a lot at all. Um, so the determination to do well, um, benchmarks, earning more money and, and a better job title are always kind of important. So that kind of moving forward, moving up, moving forward, moving up has always been um, a kind of drive for me, really. Yeah. Um, and, and the stubbornness to not let things beat me uh, was probably a big part of that as well. But I think it probably comes from that kind of poor kid attitude, though. A good motivator in life, though, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I think, do you th- I, I often find as well, people that move away from where they're from are more determined than, than, than maybe the... the, the the siblings or the peers because they kind of feel I need to prove that look I've done this move I've done made this change and look I've done okay at it um, I think that's important 
Um, I certainly did it for me because I didn't want to go back with my tail between my legs saying that I've gone to London, I've gone to America. I was like, there's no way I can fail at this. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's definitely a motivator for a lot of us. So, John, how many years have you worked for Trevor Sorby? Uh We are coming up to 17 in February. So, yeah, quite a long time now. That's a, yeah. that's a good time. That's a, that's a good time. But you started off obviously being colourist. Yeah. When you pass your test, you, you, you're kind of given one of two options, really. You're either a technician uh, or a senior technician. You can't be any higher. Right. So I started as a senior technician. Of course you very did. Very shortly after. Of course you did. <laughs> um, but very shortly after that, I moved to the Brighton Salon. Uh, I was there for about four years. Uh, then back in Covent Garden uh, after Trevor had asked me to help set up and run the salon in Manchester when it opened. Right. So I was back in Covent Garden for a while and then uh, doing the staff training, doing a lot you know, client days and so on. And then I was up in Manchester for three years and I've been back in Covent Garden now uh, just over nine years. I, back yeah, back, I, well, I, I think it could be ten. Nine or ten years, definitely, because that's when know. we met. Well, we, we first met online, really, on, on Twitter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to make sure that we're quite clear on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, a different time. <laughs> <was> it, <laughs> yeah, so we, uh, we first sort of chatted on Twitter, and I was still in Manchester, which I think was probably about ten years ago. Yeah. But I think it was 2011, I came back uh, to London, Um so we'd been talking probably for about a year by that point, I think, because you were 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 back and making such a splash in the UK, um, and um, I kind of I can't remember how I, it was definitely me that kind of reached out to you because you would have no clue who I was. Um, you were one of the I'd first said, people to actually oh, meet me at events and be really nice to me and just you know and help me out. And you always sort of like come along to this, come along to that. I mean, you you. you were at all those events, and of course I didn't know anybody, and you introduced me to absolutely everyone. And now you're, you're just a centre of attention everywhere you go. <laughs> no, John, that's you. <laughs> that's you, you know it is. You're always teasing me, something rotten, that's for sure. I, do you know, I think the thing is, so I, I um, one, I think you like it. <laughs> but two, I think um, there's a reverence around um, Jack Howard, this kind of uh, almost mythical figure, king of balayage. Oh, um, and, and then, but I think what people uh, will know immediately as soon as they meet you um, is, is the real kind of silly warmth to you as well. And, and, and you're also very good at kind of taking the piss out of me as well. <laughs> but nobody calls me Auntie Jackie like you do. We'll always call you Auntie Jackie. Um, but it's, it's a genuinely affectionate term. Yeah. Um, you, the, the warmth, you came, I organised, um, for the first time ever, um, where we had an external person um, come in to do teaching technique um, into Trevor Sorby. Yeah. And I... Uh, organised for you to come in and do two different teaching sessions um, with all the colourists. We brought people down from Manchester. We had Hampstead at that point uh, and also uh, Covent Garden in Brighton. And we sort of got two different weekends and we had uh, two days with you. Uh, and it was great. And it, it, it kind of, um, as you know, I, I was kind of doing ballet already, but it wasn't really taken seriously um until we kind of got this training and everyone really understood mm. it um 
And the, the, the feedback we got from every colourist that worked with you over those two days was lovely and warm. And uh, and one person, not me, uh, a lovely girl called Lily, who works in our Manchester salon, who, not underplaying at all, is my adopted daughter. Um, she she was the, the one who coined the Auntie Jackie because she was so warm and friendly <laughs> and nice. Um, and it's kind of stuck ever since. I think that's the interesting piece about that is, though, that you wanted to bring somebody else in who wasn't in the company so that your your search for education that resonated with the work that you were doing in the salon sort of still continued once you were on the floor. Yeah. I mean, you always... There's a piece where we were working together at Colour World this year, which, of course, was a very different experience to how it normally was. And you were doing a presentation with this, uh, with a foiling technique to create a, a feel of balayage in it. And... It was so simple, but it was just a different placement and it was really quick and you didn't overcomplicate it. And I think maybe that's the connection in some ways, that you can keep things simple and still effective. Well, yeah, I think that's important. I mean, I think everyone has to start somewhere. And, and um, I'm sure you remember when you first started doing freehand work, it is a little bit more um, scary when you first begin because it's less controlled feeling. And obviously it is controlled when you know what you're doing, yeah. but when you're playing around with it um, and you've watched maybe a couple of YouTube videos or you've maybe seen you online, it's, you see someone doing something, it's like the first time you put a foil in. Oh, my God. The first time you watch someone put a foil in is very different from the first time you put a foil in yourself, isn't From the it? very first time you pulled a cap highlight out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so let's take that back to the salon then and your career in the salon. So yeah, I mean, I've, I've always, I mean, apart from my time at Laurel, I've always been a, a salon hairdresser. Um, I, I mean, one of the things that I missed being at Laurel was was working in the salon. So while I was still in Glasgow, I, I, I did kind of like every other Saturday, and then after I moved to London, I started working in a, a friend's salon in Brighton, kind of every other week. Um, kind of, kind of missed the, the the vibe, I missed the feeling, I missed the staff. Uh, I also miss the social life that mm. often goes along with salon life as well. But I, I kind of do love being behind the salon chair. Um, I love my clients. Um, I love doing a day. I love a packed day. Um, the busier I am, the more of a buzz it is. Um, and I love a full-on, back-to-back, no-lunch-break kind of day. If you have enough, if you have enough assistance, if you have, yeah, if you have, that's the problem these days, isn't it? But I also think that that is a generational thing because that's the way that we always worked. There was no thing yeah. as a lunch break. Sort of, so the the assistant went for the yeah. sandwich run if you were lucky, or you brought your own in, and you sort of grabbed a bite when you could, and you carried on working. Whereas now, of course, that's just. If people don't get their lunch break and their breaks, they get quite offended by it, don't they? Like, there's a bit of me that thinks. Like, yeah, it's, it's only fair. You know, people are entitled to breaks. They, they, they deserve a break. It's actually yes. good for you. But actually, I, I just don't really run that way. I'm, I'm, I'm much better suited to kind of working through and grabbing a bite to eat as I go. And I think yeah. some of it is just work ethic, but some of it, I think, is just the way that I was brought up as a young hairdresser. Yeah, me too, because if I stop... For sort of, I couldn't stop for an hour's lunch. It, well, first of all, as a colourist, how do you... You can't. Do you say, I'm sorry, I'm not checking your colour? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that toner now. <laughs> no, you've got to wait your hour. But, or, um, yeah, it's been 45 minutes since your pre-lightener's been on, but I'm halfway through my lunch. I'll be back in yeah, 30 minutes. Yeah, it doesn't minutes. work. It's, 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 
it doesn't work for me. But if I actually sit for 20 minutes, I'd rather go home. So I prefer to just work yeah. and then finish my day and then go home and sit and relax. That's the only way I can do it. Yeah, I mean, the idea of sitting for an hour for a break and sort of relaxing just is just odd for me. And it also, I find if I do end up with a cancellation or I ended up with a kind of an enforced break like that, I end up feeling a bit lethargic for the rest of yeah. the day. I don't have quite the same kind of, like, boom, knock it through type of of attitude towards the day. Uh, whereas if I kind of start off busy and stay busy, I'll, I'll, I'll just keep going. Yeah, I'm definitely with you on that. I just, and I also kind of think if I'm sat around doing nothing, I'm not really being paid for that. And I'd rather not be paid sat on my sofa, yeah. you know, doing whatever I want to do. But at work, I want to generate money. Yeah, but I, was, I, I don't find the work environment really the right place to be relaxed. No. Do you know what I mean? I, I can do literally sod all at home for hours and hours quite happily but the idea of doing nothing at work is just I get itchy yeah um so I tend to kind of move around like reception have a chat to them eventually start to get annoyed and then move to someone else start to do the same with them and so I tend to find myself kind of floating around and then as a smoker I kind of tend to smoke yeah far too much when I'm not busy because it's just something to fill the time. Yeah, I, I just, I don't want ever to not be busy on the salon floor. Yeah. How I, you know, I like it. I do love the buzz. I love the camaraderie and everything from it. And I, I think as an educator, I don't know about you, but as an educator, for me, it's really important to listen to what women are saying when they come into the salon, because those women are saying that to all the hairdressers and they're the ways in which you can relate back to a yeah. hairdresser. I think, I think it's important to kind of do the real job. Yes. As an educator, there's an authenticity that it brings to use an educator if you're still doing the same job as the people that you teach. Yeah. But my my main job at Trevor Sorby, and the main job of everyone at Trevor Sorby is on the salon floor. There's no one who does a creative job or a, a, an educator job and just does a little bit of time or no time in the salon floor. I know there are other companies that, Where that, that happens. do have that. Yeah. And everyone who who works for us, apart from a few managers and reception team, are on the salon floor. You you put money in the title, yeah. Um, whatever whatever job you have, I like that. Um, and I think I think that's important. I do because it is it's the reason for our being. Otherwise, I'm just a slightly overweight homosexual with a temp brush. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, I, At least it's I, what I, you I, bought from me. <laughs> 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 of course, um, but do you know what I mean. I, but I, but the, the, there's no point in my existence as a colorist if I'm not if I don't have clients. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I understand people who do just do session work and they just do editorials and, and magazines and, and whatever. But I think there's something even for them that that uh, is is beneficial for for keeping it some time in this island floor. If it's a day a month or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But I think having the real job is, is, is really valuable. I, I'm with you on that, John. I think that anyone that's out there, you know, even if they're doing editorial or, or session or anything, if you're going to relate it back to the consumer market, you need to be listening to what women are talking about, even if it's just for that inspiration and to keep you going and keeping it real. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I, I, I genuinely care about my clients a lot. Uh, I, I missed them during the first lockdown. I'm now that we're two weeks into the second one, beginning to kind of miss a few clients and so on. Mm. Um, but I, 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 I like that 
social side of the job and the relationship I have with my clients. Um, I mean, you know, we have 40-odd staff in the Covent Garden Salon. You can go most of the day without seeing some other people, different floors, different parts of the salon. My my day as as a colourist is with that person in my chair. It's not with ex-stylist or ex-colourist. Um, it's, it's actually with the client and that's the real job I think is, is and those relationships that you build um, I see some of those people more than I see my own family um, and know, probably, know them probably slightly better for that reason Yeah, I, I, sometimes the people that, in the teams that I've worked in it can find me difficult not that you'd ever know that about me but because my centre my sense of focus from the minute I enter the salon until the time I leave is my client her experience, her feeling about everything. And that's that's my focus. And you can go all day without seeing anyone. Yeah. But seeing clients, I mean, it's just the reality. Yeah, I mean, it's the same for me. I mean, I, I it is about me and my client um, for the time that they're in the salon. Um, and if, if, if they've had to wait for something or whatever, I, I can get a little annoyed. I mean, I'm not an angry person. I, I don't go about sort of demanding and shouting or anything like that, but... But I, I do get upset if, if if my client is paying a premium price for what we offer um, yeah. and and they, they have to wait for an assistant or they have to wait for a drink or, or uh, I haven't been told that they're in or, or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so I, those things upset me too. They, they really upset me. I don't go about raging about it, but I will make sure that people know that this is what I, I need and this is what I expect to happen. I think people sometimes think I'm raging and I'm like, I'm being as calm as possibly can be because inside I'm absolutely raging. raging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I yeah. think the other thing for me yeah. is, I think if I get if I was to kind of get to that point of getting upset verbally, visually, whatever, that would then kind of be picked up with a client and that's kind of the exact yeah. opposite of what I want to happen. I want that client to come in and feel relaxed and... Yes. and you know me well enough to know that the type of relationship I have with my client is professional, but it is also slightly irreverent as well. I mean, I, I I have some very random kind of odd conversations with clients sometimes because I, I, I'm i quite happy to kind of have a laugh at their expense, but I'm also quite happy for them to have a laugh at my expense as well. It's called a relationship. Yeah, but it, and it's kind of who I am kind of thing. So um, you build a clientele like you build a circle of friends, I think. You, you gather around yeah. those that you like and they like you, as well as hopefully like your work. <laughs> well, we do hope they <laughs> like our work too. Busy in the salon, super commercial, which is fantastic, and yet you've gone on to win awards for... What I think is very avant-garde. So the, the behind the chair win was that stunning visual, the the Adidas visual. Yeah. Or based on that, how do you manage to be good at both? I don't know. But I, I I I've always had a real issue with the oh I'm creative thing. Right. Um, it seems very self-absorbed to kind of describe yourself in such a way. So I would never kind of describe myself as. As, as a creative in that sense. Um, I'm drawn towards it. Um, I find it visually interesting in the same way that I would find you know, a, a good ceramicist interesting. I would find uh, a good painter interesting. I would find anyone who does something in this sort of creative way interesting. So I'm drawn towards it, but I would never describe myself as a creative in that sense. Mm. Um, I think for me, it's it's having 
a tiny little nugget of an idea and then working out through stubbornness how to make that happen. Right. I mean, the, the Adidas um, pictures, where they're actually, once the prep's done, because it's wefts of hair, and once the prep's done, as in the, it's bleached and toned uh, and ironed, uh, the actual painting on of, of the, the technique or the effect is is probably 10, 20 minutes um, at the now most. stop it. But it took me three months to get it to that point. Right. So right. there was lots of kind of uh, bleaching the the light onto the onto dark hair, but never getting past like a yellow yellow mm. um, until I kind of worked out what product I needed to use over blonde hair to put the black on, so that it didn't run, didn't smear. But that that kind of process probably took up a lot of days off and evenings over about a three month period to kind of get to that point. So the technique being 10, 20 minutes is actually true. It is really that quick. Um, it's just a steady hand. I don't, I didn't want to do it through... Stencils. Masking or stencils. Mm. Or I wanted it to be false and all my hand. Right. Um, that was important to me at the time. And I've got nothing against stencils. I was chatting to uh, Marley, Marlon Hawkins from um, Brooks and Brooks about uh, an image that he did that he knows I think is an amazing image. And I was joking with him that he cheated because he uses stencils. I, that's not how I think about it at all. I, for me, just at that point in time, I didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted it to be just my hand and nothing else. Because there's a certain delicacy of work that I don't think is achievable on here to a certain point. With a stencil? No, I think you can get it better with a stencil, a certain element of delicacy that you can't get right. freehand. Because you've got the surround of the stencil, not just the hole, to hold the hair in place. And you don't have that kind of freedom with, um, without it. Right. So to do something freehand, you, 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 you don't get those fine lines quite in the same way that he got in the image that, that is, is a really beautiful image. If you look at Marlon's page, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of a, like a lilac background with white lines on it. Um, right. And I know some of the stuff that he did was freehand, some of it was, was um, uh, stencil, and it's just a beautiful picture. I and mean, the work is just brilliant. His work but, is lovely as well. He really is yeah, one to watch, isn't he? He's definitely cool. one to watch. Yeah, oh, definitely. Him and Grace, um, a, a, a phenomenal pairing as well. Yes. Um, and just lovely. But yeah, so for me, at that point in time, it was about um, doing a colour collection that was black and white, short in colour, but the colours were just black or white. That was it. Kind of yeah. Thing. Um, so it was... But I did want it to be false and all mine. I didn't want it to be down to my ability to, to generate a stencil, whether that was me cutting it or someone doing it by machine. Um, Do you think that's why part of the reason why that image sort of that that image when those images went everywhere, didn't they? I mean, they were just it was kind of mental. Um, yeah. I'd done a a, a picture. Uh, I'd done a picture. We'd done a collection as the art team the year before, and there was one specific image in that that gained a bit of attention it was kind of like a chessboard on the hair and it was all the way through and it's it's four hours of backbreaking work to do it um i hope i never have to do it again i've done it many times i've got a damaged shoulder permanently because of it um but it, that, that was kind of 
the start of it, Hair Club Live um, used yes. to have a like a monthly competition at the time. Yes. Uh, so I won the monthly one, then I won the the image of the year, effectively. And alongside that um, was a prize, and you had a, a stylist, a, a makeup artist, and a photographer, Chris Bizulik. God, he's going to kill me because I've probably got his name wrong. Bizulik, Bizulik, Bizulik. Hey, anyway, Chris, he's lovely, really good, good guy. And um, I then had budget, if you like, to do my own um, collection or, or shoot. And Chris just got what I wanted to do, that I had this black and white um, thing in my head. And he was really supportive and has remained really supportive of it, has, has kind of been, been ridiculously generous and sort of free usage for the, the, the images and so on. Mm. Um, and so I, I basically turned up with... with Two girls, Tay, the main model, um, and um, some bleached wefts with sort of black painted on them, uh, and they were stuck onto her head, and it just went mental. So we we launched it at Colorworld that year, um, but until that point, we, we had uh, a tasted image, and it was the two girls in the Adidas picture. Um, I initially thought there was another one that uh, looks a bit more like feathers and it's kind of got the hair sort of blown out to the side. And we thought that was the one that was going to sort of, if anything, might have kind of got picked up by by trade, press mm. and so on. Um, but it, it was the Adidas with the two girls that kind of just went mental. So I I wasn't feeling very well the day that we put the picture out. Right, and it and it was also the last day that we could put the uh, entries in with the hashtag for the behind the chair. Yeah, um, entries. So it was the last day um, that of their entries that uh, that picture was going out, and we changed it at the last minute because um, we just thought it was kind of more intriguing as an image. Like you'd wonder how it was done uh, more than the other one. And so I wasn't re- feeling very well. I'd been at the chiropractor. And I ended up having to stop him because I felt really queasy. Um, and it was just getting worse during having my neck cracked and so on. And and I had to, I, I left the chiropractor and my phone was going mad. Um, at, at the time it was getting reposted and, and how many likes that were on there. Mm-hmm. And, and and I'd never had that before. Um, and I ended up having to sit kind of at a bus stop kind of thing um, because it was a really hot day <laughs> in May. I was feeling really like I was going to throw up sick. Uh, I'd just be the chiropractor and I'm sat there and I was having this amazing thing happen that everyone was liking this image. And then, um, meanwhile, feeling really queasy um, and, and kind of unwell. I had to sit there for about 10 minutes <laughs> before I could walk back home again. Um, but yeah, it, it, it kind of went mad. I mean, it was picked up kind of all over the world. Mm. Um, it was kind of covers in Russia, Scandinavia, um, Australia, uh, China. Um, it it, it went, went boom. Yeah. Yeah, it went yeah. mental. Um, and then I won um, International Creative Colour Award for Behind the Chair. Which is uh, phenomenal. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. And Mary, I mean, you've met Mary, she's great, isn't she? Yeah, she is great. And they, they, I don't know, they just seem to be on it with all that stuff, don't they? So, she so was so ahead of the game with, with being online, I think. I mean, the fact that she stopped like her paper um, publication well ahead of the game for everyone else. Yeah. Um, and kind of went online with everything. She kind of really understood what she was doing. But she's also really lovely to spend time with. Yes. Um, really, really supportive kind of 
as a non-hairdresser knows her industry incredibly well. Mary's been on the podcast as well, and she's she is fascinating. But I recently heard you at Colour World when we were talking about Instagram. And... I'm like, oh God, what was that? <laughs> That's in the outtakes, everyone. <laughs> um, and you you talk about education in person online and we spoke about it at the beginning of the of the intro today let's go back to that a little bit because you you have a very strong feeling about this don't you and a, or a relatively strong opinion about it like what part of it like i'm, I'm not very good at, 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 at social media um i i probably tend to lean to not wanting to spend a lot of time personal time mm. doing stuff for it and so on um but i think well i think it's no social media is a way to build a clientele uh for some people and you can certainly set your stall out through social media um and, and i think that's great but i think what is more important is to be good build your yes. clientele by by doing good work, turning up every day, you know, see your appointments on time, don't run late, be respectful to your clients, enjoy your clients because they'll enjoy you more if you do, um, be reliable and you will get recommendations and you will have, you will build a clientele. But it, it, So for me, that, that kind of takes precedence over a social media following or, mm. or, or building a clientele through social media. Um, it is important um, and there are people who've done incredibly well out of social media. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's kind of been uh, the downfall of some people, I think. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. I think if you live your life on social media, you can expect to die your death on social media, uh, potentially. Mm. Um, and for me, that kind of lack of interest in being kind of famous or well-known is probably part of it but you are already famous and well known for heaven's sakes i mean you're famous or well known i think i'm established yeah. yeah i think I'm, I, there, there may be an element of being <clears> established <throat> and so on and i've been around and i work for a, a, a higher profile brand i work for yeah. a well-known hairdresser i mean trevor sorby has kind of been described as the godfather of hairdressing or, or whatever and it's kind of up there with like feed out soon and mm-hmm I, I kind of get that kind of comes with territory, but I would never want to be kind of publicly known, if that makes sense. I think the industry feels more familial than 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 kind of broad in that sense. Um, I mean, my my if you look at my Instagram, it's very much for 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 me, my clients, and hairdressers. It's not yeah. really commercial in that sense, um, and I don't share a, a huge amount uh, on it. No, I mean, I, I think there's... So I think there are sort of... You're either an industry or you're an entertainer, you know? And it's yeah. like, I definitely want to be more industry and to attract clients and people on courses than I want to entertain people. Yeah. And I think it is a great tool, but it, I think that the, the recommendation of people to people is great. But it's also... I think that you can use social media as a way to still talk with your clients, like you just said. I mean, you don't need thousands upon thousands of followers. It, it depends what role you're running after in life. Yeah. Um, and if you're if you're in, you know, my hometown of Lincoln or something, you don't need to be talking to people in Australia unless you want to move to Australia. You just want to talk to your clients there. Yeah. 
And the other thing you touched upon is education online. So we've got influencer educators. Yeah. And you talked about you talked about that you'd seen lots of not great education online. Everyone's rushing to a live, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing that put me off doing lives during the first lockdown was how many lives that I saw that I didn't love. Mm. Um, and I didn't want to be grouped into this kind of um, potentially negative kind of period of, of poor education. Um, and then, then laziness kicked in, quite honestly, because um, there was some great education during it obviously yours. We had a guy uh, at Trevor Sorby called Ryan uh, Forsyth. He did some amazing sort of lives, uh, really lovely haircuts. And they kind of basically took, I think, one or two blocks, uh, training heads, yeah. and kind of and went from sort of longer to shorter. Well, I did that with mine too. Yeah. Absolutely. I, there was me cutting them at some point. But don't you think, though, John, if you, if you look back to, if we talk about how your training started, so, I mean, I'm not being difficult, maybe slightly contentious, um, if you look at how your training started, so it was like little inroads into it that then leads you to a bigger role, that leads you to a bigger role in London. But it took a period of time to do that. So it was a gradual yeah. process and you learn along the way. The map has slightly changed now, how people approach yeah. that. And if you start off doing, I mean, my first live without a film crew doing everything for me, on my own, was in my kitchen, and the lighting was absolutely horrific, and it's gone from that to, over all this time, to something that I understand better. Maybe there is some really bad stuff out there, but maybe also that it's a, it's a, it's a new learning curve for people, and it's, it's, a, it's more public, which is the hard thing about it. That's the, that's the difficulty in that, that you have that kind of um, first impression thing, don't you? So you, you get to see someone making their first impressions um, yeah. in education as an educator or whatever. And, and they're maybe not the best first impressions. And that's where I think the problem lies, is that, is that it's out there then. And that you, if you spent a bit more time kind of doing it to your iPhone, in your kitchen, with no one watching it but you and maybe a trusted friend or few friends and say, yeah. and give you feedback... Or have a mentor kind of thing, someone that you've worked with, someone that you admire and say, oh, I've done a wee bit of a training thing, would you mind having a look at it for me? Um, is that these people are kind of doing it for the first time online and they're being judged for it. And I was, I, I was understandably mm. judging uh, that themselves. And that's where my problem with it, I suppose, really lies, is that how then do you gain back the kind of respect for what you do if you've made so many boobs or errors. And yeah. there's only so much, uh, oh, but he's lovely, that you'll get away with. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I um, do. Especially if you're going to start charging for that uh, education as well. Yeah, I, for me, I think if you've not done any online, real strong online education or any strong education, I don't think you should be charging for it. I think you should be using it as a learning curve. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. Um, and I think that, what you say is very insightful because my friend in New York and I, we we constantly check each other to make sure that the lighting's right and that this, you know, even last night she went, raise the doll head right on my live. And I was like, oh, raise the doll head. But you need, you can't do it all on your own. You need the guidance. And I think that, yeah. I think that because of our backgrounds in, ed in real education, because my first education day i nearly wet myself on stage i was so horrified i couldn't move or talk but <laughs> so, so so nervous yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah yeah 
yeah, wanting to vomit, you know, yeah. with with three people in the audience. Um, but of course, I've learned my I've learned how to command a room and talk to a room and talk to people through that. And so for me to transfer it on Instagram Live has been much easier. It's just about finding the right lighting and all those things. Um, but this is this is the new way. Yeah, no, I, I, and I get that. I, I think um... I want to see you online. I do, yeah. Yeah. Just go to www. Not of a fan's page. Oh, God. No no one needs to see that nonsense. I I absolutely agree with you. Oh, thanks. No, I, you know, I, the thing is, I, I do think, oh, should I do something? Then I, then I don't. Then I kind, of, I, I kind of keep going up and down on it um, as to, to what to do. Because the things that I, I kind of probably do the most of is commercial work. Um, yeah. And it's, it's kind of not what I put my, myself out for such in social media, for example. Um, I do a lot of foiling. Uh, I do a lot of balayage. Um, and, and then there's an element of kind of being a, a, a small voice amongst many. Um, and why, why, would, why would you listen to this as opposed to to someone else as opposed so um yeah I've, I've never really felt a great urge to to rush towards it i don't think but maybe you never know well i'd like to see a little bit of that determination on that and see you on live maybe maybe we should do something together auntie jackie auntie jackie <laughs> I might take you up on that, John Spanton. <laughs> I could teach you some balayage. <laughs> you, I'm sure you could teach me a few things. <laughs> me being a shy country boy and all that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Exactly. John, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on today. And not only great laughs, but great insight too. Um, thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Good. Good stuff. Thank you very much indeed. If you want to follow John on Instagram, he's John Spanton Hair. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did making it for you. Don't forget to subscribe on your channel that you download your podcasts from. iTunes is my favourite, but I know there are others out there. And also, if you want to follow me on stories on Instagram, it's Jack Howard Colour, C-O-L-O-R, the American way, not the English way. And on Facebook, it's Jack Howard Colour, C-O-L-O-R. And my website is www.jackhowardcolor.com. Thank you.